It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast, the podcast. It's your chance for an escape into the countryside where you can enjoy some encounters with wildlife and meet some great rural folk. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of this podcast. In this episode, we join storyteller Martin Maudsley in the ancient lanes of Dorset, where he's following in the footsteps and trying to trace the hideout of the rogue male the title character of a renowned 1930s spy thriller written by Geoffrey Household. In the book, following a failed assassination attempt, the assassin hides in the English countryside as the henchmen from a foreign power try and track him down. So follow Martin while he wanders into these strange and enticing hollowways and delves into local folklore to reveal some of the literary magic woven into our landscape. Plus, along the way, Martin tells some of his own fabulous little tales. So pour yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable to sit, and just relax and enjoy the adventure. Hello, my name is Martin Maudsley. I'm a professional storyteller based in Bridport in West Dorset. Uh, although I haven't been able to tell stories to live audiences for uh, a couple of months now. Um, but it's given me a great chance to go out and explore uh, my local patch, which is a very beautiful place. I'm very lucky to live here and have access to the, the countryside of West Dorset. Um, it's a beautiful, just late morning in late May, and the air is very warm. I'm sat in the shade of a tree in the churchyard in Simmonsbury. It's very quiet, apart from some beautiful bird song. We've got chaffinches and wrens and robins, and... The gorgeous screaming of swifts. I've just seen a little squadron of, of seven black wings scything through the air and, and it's a sight and sign that, that brings such joy at this time of year so very pleased to have them with us. Whether they'll be making another appearance on the recording, I don't know. And Simsbury's beautiful, picturesque sort of picture box sort of village. Um, I'm sat here in, in the ancient church and opposite me is the school which is quiet, there's no one in the school and the church itself is locked. I've been many times to the school to tell stories and take children out into the local countryside and tell them stories and gather folklore. I remember being there a couple of years ago in, in late winter, early spring and we went into the woods and we'd been looking at all the, the signs of nature, the first beginnings of spring and we found underneath uh, a sycamore tree a great drift of snowdrops and we talked about the names of of those beautiful white flowers that Eve's tears and snow piercers of February's fair maids and naked ladies. 
And by the time we came back from our little trip to the woods, back to the school, the vicar was just coming out of this church and, of course, asked the children where they had been into the woods, sir, and asked them what they had seen, to which they replied, naked ladies. So we quickly uh, ushered the children back into the school and, uh, well, we've got no children or, or vicars with us here, so I'm on my own. So we won't be making any... Um, mistakes with wordplay today hopefully uh and just behind the church here is uh simonsbury manor and i'm i just saw the owner actually the current owner coming out of uh, simonsbury manor on his bicycle on a little local errand with a cheery wave um but as i've gone around this churchyard i've seen for the first time actually which has given me it's quite surprised but joy to find the gravestone of J.S. Udall, John Simmons Udall, who um, died in 1925. He's buried right here in Simmonsbury Churchyard. But he lived also in Simmonsbury Manor. And the reason why he's very um, important to me as a storyteller is that he wrote a seminal book called Dorsetshire Folklore, which was a, a life's work, really, of collecting all the seasonal celebrations and folk customs uh, and traditions of, of this whole county of Dorset and he wrote them down and they've been the source of many stories and, and um, folklore for me to, to dwell on and to, to, to bring back to life and to, and to perform um, to people. Uh, the story goes that he won the, the Simmonsbury Manor residence in a card game and that he had the, the winning card, I believe it was the Ace of Spades pinned to the wall, whether that's true I don't know. He had several visitors uh in fact the four word in fact it was called the four say of his book dorsetshire folklore was written by william barnes a great wonderful uh dorset poet he wrote it at the end of his life in fact he wrote it 40 years before the the book was published so it was one of the last things he wrote and the other visitor to simsby manor when j.s udall was there was thomas hardy who's the other great giant of dorset literature and he being a little bit younger used to carry on visiting the the manor it's said that one day when j.s udall was out of the country which he did he traveled quite a lot that thomas hardy being so pleased with the hospitality from the servants and the household he he stayed for two weeks and j.s udall when he returned was so um upset by thomas hardy helping himself to hospitality they sent him a bill for for two weeks bed and breakfast afterwards Again, these are the stories that I've heard. <laughs> I'm going to take the storyteller's approach that uh, whether it's true or not, it's whether it makes a good story. So the reason why I'm here is not because of those two, uh, or those three rather, literary giants of Dorset, but another literary connection to this very specific part of Dorset. And I moved here about seven years ago. Um, from Bristol and when I moved here I was given a book that I'd never read before by a good friend of mine and it's called Rogue Mail and it's by Geoffrey Household many, many of you perhaps will have heard of it, it it's a masterpiece really it's, it was written in 1939 just at the start of the Second World War um, by Geoffrey Household who was born in 1900 and it's a gripping boy's own sort of story really it's a very um exciting thrilling i've just reread it just over this weekend actually and it really is a page turn it's about a man a sort of british hero who uh, has attempted an assassination on a foreign leader which could be uh, hitler it's got that sort of sense of someone in a european fascist leader uh but he was failed in his attempt was caught captured was tortured but managed to escape again came back to england to london and there pursued by the the secret agents of the enemy state 
he he killed one of their number and that from then on he had to leave london and was chased by both the, the police who were on his tail and by these secret agents and he chose to come to dorset where he had a connection like the author jeffrey household had a connection actually and he came to ground here and so this is where we're picking up the story, really, of him hiding out, um, literally going to ground like a wounded creature. I'm sort of very drawn to analogies of, of badgers or foxes here, sort of really escaping from the, their hunters, from the baying hounds, uh, and going to ground in familiar territory. In fact, the, the book I've just read before Rogue Mail this weekend was A Black Fox Running by Brian Carter, which is written through the point of view through the eyes through the noses um of a fox and you've really got this sense that that jeffrey household has really allowed his hero or almost anti-hero to to really talk about how he's become a hunted animal and in fact right at the beginning of the book he gives a little definition I'm not sure where it comes from uh, of a rogue male and it says the behavior of a rogue male may fairly be described as individual separation from its fellows appearing to increase both cunning and ferocity and we certainly see a lot of cunning and ferocity uh, throughout the rest of the book it's a very visceral book both in terms of how that the hero copes with being hunted and how he he hides away how he manages to survive against all the odds and manages to escape um his his captors his hunters how he manages to lay false trails like a fox evading the the hunting hounds um, but it's also visceral in another sense that it so beautifully encapsulates the body of the landscape that we feel just by reading this book that we're drawn into a landscape. And because I'm lucky that I live in this landscape, it's a good chance today to really take the footsteps of the character and particularly to follow his tracks down the Holloways. So we're going to talk about the Holloways in just a minute. Um, as we step into one at the moment i'm still in the in the in the shade of the church but i've stashed my bike around the back with god's protection and if that doesn't work i've also got a d-lock on it um, just in case uh and we're stepping into the footsteps of of other uh literary artists because after Geoffrey Household wrote Rogue Mail, there's been lots of people that have followed the footsteps, have really been drawn into this way that he's described the countryside, the, the landscape so beautifully. And two of them will be familiar to lots of you. Roger Deakin, who sadly passed away more than a decade ago, and, and Robert McFarlane. And Roger and Robert came here to West Dorset in 2004, and they were given a tip-off by a local. I've got a suspicion I know who that might be. Um... And they followed his, his hints and tips and they followed the, the evocation and the description of the landscape in Rogue Mail and they came for an adventure, like, like schoolboys themselves, giddy with the excitement and with the, the thrill of finding the, the trails, perhaps even false trails that the author has laid for them. So I'm really following several trails now and I like the fact that, that it feels like this little adventure this beautiful May Day is, is like peeling back layers. We're peeling back the layers of the landscape as we go deeper into the folds and the, the, the sense of there's a burrow in a hollowway, in a cleft, in a valley. There's all these sort of deeper and deeper levels of the countryside, but also the layers of, of words uh, that different people have written. I passed out of the chalk into the sandstone. 
The lanes, worn down by the pack horses of a hundred generations, plodding up from the sea onto the dry, hard going of the ridges, were fifteen feet or more below the level of the fields. I pushed my combination bicycle along the ridge until I came to a lane that dived down into the valley. In the dark, I could hardly recognise it. I remembered it as a path, deep indeed, but dappled with sunlight, it looked to me now a cleft eroded into desert country, for its bottom was only a cart's width across and its sides, with the banks, the hedges above them and young oaks leaping up from the hedge, seemed fifty feet of solid blackness. So those were the words of Geoffrey Household through the eyes of his household hero uh, in Rogue Mail. And I've come up now from the, the village of Simmonsbury. I'm heading in a different direction to the character. I'm, I'm heading up from the sea, up through Shute's Lane. And Shute is an old Dorset word for Holloway. So I've come into this Holloway, the first of our Holloways. And it's an incredibly atmospheric place. It, it really is that, that deep, much more, probably 15, 20 feet of of sandstone that's been worn down by footfall and by water running through and the, the wheels of, of carts. And then above that, there's the hedge, but the hedge is, has grown wild and unruly and it's become these great multi-stemmed trees. Uh, there is oak trees, as is mentioned in the passage there. There's ash trees, there's field maples and there's birds singing in the tops of those trees and the breeze is channeled down through the trunks of the trees and into the roots and there's a sort of gentle humming sound that's mixed with the, the buzz of a bumblebee that I've just heard and a, and a, and a few flies amongst this, this very dappled light. It's a kind of uh, spots of sunshine that my, my daughter calls leopard light. It's very cool here and there's a real sense of stepping stepping back really, stepping back in time, stepping out of everyday life really going back into history and all the sense of of people and their stories that have passed this way um and i love the piece actually in in the holloway book where robert mcfarlane is writing and he he talks about the 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 convolution of, of time he says down in the dusk of the holloway the landscape's pasts felt excitingly alive and coexistent as if history had pleated back on itself bringing discontinuous moments into contact and creating correspondences that survived as a territorial imperative to concealment, escape and encounter. So it certainly feels here that this is one of the places where the hero could have easily have created the burrow that that he lives and hides in for much of the, the, the main part of the story. And we can see on the sides here... Lots of words and and pictures scraped and scratched into the sides. That some of them are covered in in algae and moss, so they're quite old. And a few of them have dates. I've, I've certainly seen a date of you know, there's twelve twelve nineteen seventy there, uh, very green and old looking. I've seen one from nineteen sixty four with the words Pete, and I actually came down here with my friend. Uh, Peter Stevenson once who <laughs> was born in 1964 and was quite shocked to find his name and, and, uh, and year of birth marked on the sides of the stone here there's some strange looking faces almost sort of gargoyle like as if they're scaring away bad spirits and there are some spirits not necessarily bad or, or either good that do inhabit these places according to um, local folklore according to the the book written by J.S. Udall, Dorsetshire folklore. There are a race of the little people, a particular brand of of fairies 
peculiar to Dorset called the colpexes. And I suppose the word coal, the first part of the word, is, relates to coal because they're, they're pixies or pexes that, that delve and dig into the, into the soft substrate of this Dorset landscape. And as they're scraping and scratching, making holes or, or drawing magical words and incantations, their fingers fall off and we can still find colpexes' fingers in this landscape. But particularly on the Jurassic Coast, you'll find colpexes' fingers, which some other people might want to with more rationalist frames of mind, call them bellum knights. Um, but we here call them colpex's fingers. They're very beautiful things and lucky things to find. And they say if you put a colpex's finger underneath your pillow, that night you will dream of treasure. And there are lots of stories um, in the Dorset landscape about the colpexes. And they're, they're tricksy people. They can lead you astray or they can, they can give you a benefit. Uh, and there's one story about an old farmer who lived down in the village of Simmonsbury. He travelled um, weekly, perhaps twice weekly, on his way from Simmonsbury to Chiddock on the way to the pub. Several pubs there were in those days in the village of Chiddock. There was the Ship Inn, which is now gone, and there was the George and the Clock House, where it's still there. And he travelled um, along the lanes, the shortcut through the folds of the landscape, but on the way back, it was often quite slow. It wasn't the, the length of the Holloway. It was the width of the Holloway that caused him to stumble around. And one particularly dark night after he'd had a few more pints of local ale than usual, he was finding it very slow going. But he had a, a candle lantern, sort of candle inside a little glass case to light his way so he could make his way down the darkness of the Holloway. And well, with the amount of intake that evening in the pub and the pressure of, of, of gravity, he soon needed to take a piece. We stopped by the sides of the Holloway and um, as he released and relieved himself, he closed his eyes for a moment, enjoying that, uh, that release of pressure. But as he looked up again, he saw that his candle lantern, which he'd hung on a hook of a tree root just at eye level, a handy root protruding from the side of the tree, suddenly as he looked up, he saw that that lantern was taken away. It was lifted up from the edge and the hedge of the hollowway, and then he could see it just drift off into the fields beyond. Well, he said to himself, well, aren't the colpexes the tricksy creatures that I've always believed them, they've taken away my lantern and the rest of the walk of course was more difficult and dark and dangerous and the next morning he was still bleary eyed and a bit cross and, and he was blaming the pixies when he met his neighbour, a neighbouring farmer standing at the gate of his hedge and he said the cold pixies were out and about and up to mischief last night and his neighbour said ah that'd be true he said well didn't I come out into the field this morning and I found one of my cows with the hook and crook of its horns hanging from it was an old candle lantern I tell you the pixies were out and about and they were causing mischief well the two fellows agreed never quite realising what had gone on that it was all down to the cold pixies. and whether all of these inscriptions here are, are down to the cold pixies, I, I wouldn't like to say there's definitely some some more modern human inscriptions. I noticed one that said 16th of July, um, and in brackets it had uh, still in quarantine. It's a beautiful place to be in an afternoon. It's so cool and still, and it takes us right back into the possibilities of, of stories coming to life. So I'm going to head even further up. There's, a, there's another famous Holloway uh, at the top of the crossroads here called Hell Lane, and uh, that leads on right into the next village. So that would have been the way that our, our farmer went um, tricked by the colpexes. So I'm going to follow his footsteps as well as carry on and look at some possibilities of our household hero going even deeper underground and, um, and finding hideaways in the landscape.
So now I've shot out of the top of Shoot Lane, out of the dark cathedral-like air of that steep-sided sandstone hollowway, and I've now come into a little patch of sunshine. I'm almost at the level of the fields now. I can see the, the barley in the next field blowing in the breeze. I've stopped underneath a hawthorn tree, a may tree that's full of blossom. The scent is filling the air. It's quite beautiful. It's a very magical tree, of course, for, for storytellers. It's the tree of fertility. It's the tree of the fairies. Um, lots of stories around the hawthorn tree. And it's been quite busy, not particularly with the little people, but with uh, bigger people. There's been joggers uh, who seem to know what they're doing on their way. Um, there's been a few ramblers who one or two have asked the way perhaps out this direction for the first time there was a wild looking man who uh, pretty much naked apart from shorts and, and some wild looking hair with a with a piece of old wood across his shoulders which looked like uh, he'd been out foraging and looking for what he needed in this landscape and that's the point i suppose where we are with our household hero he's, he's come um, off the ridge and into the hollow and now faced with this warren of lanes that go in different directions, some deeper, some shallower, and he's finding out the place which would which would feel safe for him, that would take him away from uh, the, the people that are hunting him, and would give him a place to to live and sustain himself. And he, and like him, I suppose, I'm looking now at what options we have. So to go straight, very sharp left would take me over Colmer's Hill, the iconic hill, uh, but that goes straight back to Simmonsbury. So we don't want to go that way. It's sort of slightly more shallow. But still to the left would take us over Quar Hill, join up onto the main road over the, the Iron Age camp. Straight on would take us into the heart of Marshwood Vale, that very fertile and, and damp and delightful part of, of West Dorset, and onto Denhay Cross, um, almost certainly a, a place where the household hero would have come, and it's where my friend George Stretfield, a farmer, uh, lives, and we've met there and talked about Rogue Mail. But I'm going to go um, down this narrow hollowway downhill that's called Hell Lane. It's quite famous locally. Lots of people have heard of Hell Lane. And it's well named. Uh, it's very steep. It's uh, much more narrow than the last hollowway shoot lane. It's not as tall or steep sided, but the vegetation feels a lot closer and it's more, more tangled. There's lots more thorns and brambles and briars. And normally it's it's completely running with water in fact i've never known it to be not not pretty much a, a river flowing through a hollowway and and that of course with the loose stones with the mud with all the thorns makes it a very tricky devilish place to come and try and walk up and down and i suppose that's why it's called hell lane um but it's also a, a place of concealment it, it feels more intimate and enclosed and if you were a fox or a hunted man a rogue male you would feel much more like there were possibilities here and it's got a mixture of it's still got the sandstone sides but not as not as deep and steep and, and it's overlain with with sort of crumbly friable soil it's got ferns uh heart's tongue fern and, and other ferns growing out of it and a little bit of leftover wild garlic there and one or two drooping bluebells that have survived in the shade and this will be a spot where um, our hero, the protagonist of Rogue Mail, may well have stopped to consider where he builds his burrow. So not only content with being hidden in a hollow way, he wants to create for himself a hole into the, into the soil and the sandstone through which he can uh, create a, a den. And there's a part in the book where he talks about the eastern bank 
being full of rabbit holes which run into the heavy topsoil along the upper level of the sandstone. On the same night, I began work on them, which has provided me with a shelter from the rain and with a hearth, and by a morning I had made a hollow about two feet in diameter and long enough to receive my body. The drips of rain trickled down the sides and were caught on two projecting ledges which ran the length of the burrow and channelled to lead the water out into the lane. The floor was three feet below the level of the ledges and crossed by short faggots of ash. The hole was very much the size and the shape of two large bathtubs, one inverted upon the other. So I get the sense for, for him that felt like a safe place to hide away for others not sure how I feel but it would be a kind of hell itself to be enclosed so closely by all that weight of earth and soil and, and the feeling of whether we could breathe but it certainly was an ingenious uh, place for him to hide away so I'm going to walk down the bottle of hell, the bottom of hell lane this certainly feels like a place where you could have created a burrow but it's even though it, it's tricky walking it's, it's still fairly clear I think in recent times they've 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 cleared some of the vegetation to make way for for uh, mountain biking for off-road biking so I guess in 1939 it wouldn't be in quite so clear but there are other possibilities as we drop down hell lane now into the village of Chiddock, or in fact, a little hamlet of North Chiddock, just just north of Chiddock. Um, there are more possibilities, and those are the ones that, that Roger Deakin and, and Rob McFarlane started with. So I'm going to trundle on down Hell Lane. It's now not too hellish. And then we'll think about ways up and out of Chiddock. So I managed to come out of Hell Lane, and in fact, the, the devil perhaps had the last laugh because despite my protestation that it was dry and easy, route it was in fact very wet and slippy and tricky down at the bottom of hell lane there was running water going all the way through it i had to step very nimbly almost like a colpexy myself to to get from dry patch to dry patch and i managed to get through without getting too wet and without falling over and from the bottom of hell lane it comes into the sort of the top end of the hamlet of north chiddock uh, along the road for a bit on Butt Lane in the bottom of the valley and then onto Venn Lane heading north up towards the Marshwood Vale and Venn Lane as a road comes up to Venn Farm and then it becomes a little farm track just used by farm machinery and then even that peters out and it becomes a sort of green lane where you can reach out either side with your hands and feel the, the vegetation very lush and green at this time of year and the humidity is in the air and it's, it's a very warm afternoon now in, in May and I can feel the stickiness and the Marshwood Vale being very famous for, for being such a fertile and a damp, luscious place. It almost feels like the, the moisture is rising all around. And Venn Farm, of course, relates to, to Fen Farm. So there's obviously a history of the wetness of the place as well. And now it's become a Holloway proper. The green lane has sunken down into the earth once more. Very friable soil over around. And up above is this green, vaulted vegetation little leaf has just fallen from a holly a dried leaf has fallen down and i'm completely on my alone, alone here there's no sense of anyone else having been here for quite a long while it's very tricky to push through there's a an archway of, of a blackthorn that leads into this which certainly would stop many people that didn't want to duck down and push through the the, the spikes of the vegetation and then just on the left of the holloway i've stopped to make a cup of tea i've um brewed up in my kelly kettle storm kettle other brands are available and that wonderful feeling when you're when you're cooking or making something on a fire that that one can survive in the wild one can thrive off the land 
and I'm just sitting drinking that tea now, feeling very pleased with myself. Of course, it's very thirst-quenching as well. And the household hero would have um, made fires. There was a part in the book where, having made his burrow into the Holloway, he then created a chimney, and the top of the chimney came poking out in the middle of a, a blackthorn bush so that it would disguise the smoke and wouldn't be seen from the from the farms on either side. There was two farms, two farmers on either side of the Holloway, and um, he kept a close eye on them to make sure that he himself wasn't spotted by then. And he cooked his... Uh, meat of rabbits which he caught with a catapult and perhaps roadkill when he found that and there's also a lovely part uh, in the journey when Roger Deakin and Robert Farland come to pick up the trail and they came this way they parked their car down in the hamlet by the old church of holy martyrs and they walked up to Venn Farm and they came through this thick holloway and at one point, I think they, they went off on a wandering through a, a reconnaissance of, the, of the, the hills around the ridge at the top, which is where I'm heading in a moment. But they obviously came back to this Holloway to cook supper. And there's a lovely part in Robert Farling's book, The Wild Ways, where he pays a little prose, praise, tribute to Roger. And he says, Roger built a fire to cook supper on, a pyramid of small sticks with a hot centre of tinder that produced an intense and almost smokeless fire. We ate a spicy tagine that Roger had made in advance and carried up with him. Firelight flickered off the walls of the Holloway, and the hedge canopy above us set complicated shadows moving in the leaves. And we sat there in the thickening dark, talking. The day seemed to convene itself around the furnace point of the flames. I love that. I love the the sense that a fire becomes a focal point for, for storytelling, for creating... Um, a kind of picture display on imagination there's many times when I've been lucky enough to sit around fires and tell stories to other people and I can see that they're not looking at me they're looking at their flickering flames and they're they're seeing the pictures of the story sort of played out in those flames that's what at least that's what I think they're doing and that's often what I do when I get to listen to stories around a fire and I've enjoyed just sitting around those little uh, tiny flames of making myself a cup of tea and now I'm feeling refreshed having that I've got to push on because this is the point where the hollow gets very thick there's sort of nettles that are nipple high now so I've been put on a long sleeves and I've got long trousers on to try and get through those um it feels like it's going to be a bit of a, a sticky sweaty push um but this certainly is a candidate for for a really hidden track the road itself um or at least the, the kind of trodden pathway where people now take the route it's not really use this holloway now i don't think um it goes up into this beautiful meadow full of flowers now and there's butterflies there's i've noticed there's uh, common blues and perhaps a brown argus and there's um lots of kind of insect life just enjoying the the flowering of the meadow on the other side of the holloway there's a much sort of more agricultural lush grass field in fact i can see it's been par- partly cooked for cut for silage um and that sort of unfolds down into the marshwood vale this patchwork of green fields that's stitched together with hedgerows and it's um, very secluded and a very dense and sort of almost claustrophobic place. It reminds me of another story in another book written by Paul Theroux called The Black House. It's a sort of um, a figure, it's a kind of a ghostly story really. It's, it's, I suppose, a kind of folk horror, although I'm not sure whether the author would have used that description for it. But it describes the sort of 
the sense of foreboding and, and things uh, creeping in that, that comes in those very uh, dense and claustrophobic landscapes. So I'm going to push on through this dense and claustrophobic hallway. Uh, I'm going to enjoy the sense that if I get through this next bit, then I'll be up onto the hillside and then I'll have a proper view of, of Marshwood Vale and I'll perhaps lie in the meadow for a little while and look back towards Colmers Hill and then Bridport Belong and then I'll come down my final holloway and think about all the different possibilities for the location of uh, Household Holloway. So I've come out of the Venlane Holloway eventually. I've been pushed myself out on my hands and knees right at the end there. The the dead vegetation from the hedge had fallen right down to the bottom, uh, so I had to push myself out like a like a badger, like a rogue male coming out of his hideaway. And from there, I've climbed up the hill, the steep hill of Coppet Hill that's been graced with these bright yellow buttercups, as if it's the hiding place of fairy gold. I'm a little bit out of breath from that climb up the hill, and it's lovely to be on Coppet Hill with a bit of breeze and the butterflies. Um, holding onto the breeze there and there's a lovely little cross-reference to to Rob McFarlane's writing because he refers to this hill as Copper Hill and I wonder whether I'd like to think that his map that he used with Roger Deakin had a little crease mark on it or was somehow scraped away and so that the T had had lost its shape and become an R so he refers to it as Copper Hill and perhaps it always will be Copper Hill for him but for me it's still Coppet Hill and from here we've got this commanding view of this great ring of hills and it's from here that our our hero in the household rogue male book first enters into this landscape and there's a beautiful little half paragraph that is often quoted and I'm going to quote it now I'm going to read from it and it says at half past 12 I was on the ridge of a half moon of low rabbit cropped hills the horns of which rested upon the sea and closed between them a small lush valley the outer or northern slopes looked down upon the marshwood vale. Here I passed out of the chalk and into the sandstone, the lanes worn down by the pack horses of a hundred generations, plodding up from the sea onto the dry, hard going of the ridges. And so I've been up on the on the top of that horseshoe of hills, Coppet Hill right in the middle, I suppose, looking down to see the horns. I guess uh, Thorncombe Beacon on the left and Golden Cap on the right, where they touch the sea. And just down from Coppet Hill, between Coppet Hill and Jans Hill, there's the start of another Holloway. I don't know what the Holloway is called. It doesn't seem to have a name. The top of it is called Denhay Cross. And it's there. A year ago, I met uh, a friend and a farmer from Denhay Farm. And his father, who was called the Commander, he bought this patch of land in the Marshwood Vale at a time when it was nothing but bogs and brambles and bunnies, in his words. But he worked hard, like a good military man would, and he turned those fields into a productive dairy. And using the, the, the waste products from the dairy, he um, took pigs, and from the pigs he made bacon. And it's still now a very famous um, pig farm and a dairy farm. And bacon has graced the bottom of my frying pan many times, and delicious it is too. Uh, but I met um, George Stretfield here, who's is a great fan of listening to stories. He's also a great fan of pointing out where I've gone wrong with agricultural details. Uh, I suppose he's in, using the spirit of the archers. He's my agricultural continuity advisor. Um, but we've had a, a really wonderful walk across these lands about a year ago. It was a much wetter, colder day in April a year ago. 
where he pointed out that his father, the commander, had met Geoffrey Household in the 40s and when he'd visited, he'd pointed to this lane and said that this was, in fact, the, the model for his household Holloway. And, well, it's quite clear now with of vegetation. It's been cut back quite a lot. I suppose it's been managed for public access and for, for mountain biking, which is quite popular now around here. But I guess back in the 40s, it certainly would have been overgrown uh, and tangled, much like the last Holloway. So there's a possibility that we're here. But like the last Holloway, it's not quite orientated the right way. It doesn't quite fit the landscape descriptions that is so vivid in Geoffrey Household's book. So we're left with a possibility. I suppose it's a very real possibilities and others have come to this conclusion that there's not one place, not one Holloway that best fits the, the narrative of this rogue male book that perhaps he wrote about a composite. He obviously knew the landscape very well. He obviously visited here. In fact, he lived in another West Dorset village of Powerstock, not, not that far away. So he knew this landscape well, but perhaps to bet best fit his story he, he used different parts of Holloway's um, and put them together so it's a bit confusing and convoluted uh, but I like the way that he's, he's led this trail and I've been able to follow it today and, and talk about it to you but my way back is quite clear because from Jan's Hill where I now am halfway down this Holloway I can see Colmer's Hill and it's the most distinctive shape around here kind of pudding basin hill with this ring of perched pines on the top and it's part of the Simmonsbury estate which is owned by the Colfox family and the trees themselves the pine trees were planted uh, by a major Colfox around the time of the first world war one day major Colfox looked up at Colmer's hill as I'm looking up at it now and decided it wasn't quite the right shape it wasn't quite steep enough or tall enough and so that day he went out to his estate workers his farmers and foresters and asked them or rather told them to each take a bucket fill it with soil from the fields and take it up to the top of the hill and to to lay it on the top just to make it a little bit bigger and turn it into a perfect peak of course they did what they're told from the lord of the manor and they each took a bucket onto the top but what the major should have known and living at the time of course was J.S. Udall collecting his folklore he probably would have told him that Colmer's Hill then as it is now is a place that's favoured by the fairies the spriggans and sprites and in particular colpexes they like to go there on particular times of year May Day's Eve Midsummer's Night and they like to play their fairy music and count their treasures and do their dances well they didn't take kindly to having this sudden deposition of soil of someone interfering with a fairy place and that night as major colfox went to sleep he woke very early in the morning his eyes wide awake and his mind was filled with a sudden insistent urge that he should get up and go for a walk down the hallway well he didn't know quite why he should do such a thing but it was such a strong mental message he did in fact get dressed in the dark lift the latch of the door and step out into the hollow and at first he knew familiar lanes even the dark but soon he found his feet had taken him on a twisted turning route through the labyrinthine hollowways deeper and darker into the land and he knew by that stage that he was being pixie-led taken astray, taken on a journey as a revenge by the fairies and he wondered whether we'd ever get out of this this labyrinth of darkness and whether he'd be lost there forever but eventually as the morning was dawning he saw the light just cresting above Colmer's Hill, he found his way scrambled out of the Holloway, he fell back into his bed slept through the morning, 
But when he woke in the afternoon, he knew in his mind he must make amends, he must pay his respect to the fairies. And so, with his own hands, rather than using servants and estate workers, he began to dig holes and he planted nine pine trees on the top of the hill just to make calm as hell an even more special, sacred place that the fairies would take favour with the way that he was treating them that would have the little sheltered place and they would take pity on him he took off his hat and he raised their name and he invoked their forgiveness and back he went and sure enough things went well for him and the estate is still going well blessed by the fairies as it is and that little story makes me at least think of one final possibility as we come to the end of this journey and this search for Holloway's We've all been pixie-led, all of us, that we've been perhaps even deliberately and playfully taken on a wild goose chase that Geoffrey Household, in writing the book, knew that others would follow in the footsteps of Rogue Mail and try to find the place. But just like his hero, that we would never quite pin it down, he wouldn't be finally caught at all. And I quite like that possibility. And when Geoffrey Household died himself in 1988, at the age of 88, his son initially tried to find the rogue male Holloway to scatter his ashes within it. Uh, But when he, like me, failed to do that, he decided, quite rightly, I think, to scatter the ashes up on the tops of the hills, on that little ring of rabbit-cropped hills, the horns of which rest upon the sea. And I think that's a good place to be. And it echoes, in fact, one of the lines, a striking line in a book that is full of very striking phrases where the hero says, by God, let me die in the open. So tonight I'm going to fill my glass with a little local ale and I'm going to raise that glass to Geoffrey Household and to Rogue Mail and all of its Holloways and perhaps a little tip of the glass to the Colpexes as well. Well, spellbinding stuff there from Martin Maudsley. Thank you so much, old friend, for that fantastic adventure, delving into the literary and physical hollowways of Dorset. You can find out all about Martin's storytelling at his website, martinmaudsley.co.uk. That's Martin Maudsley. Maudsley is spelt M-A-U-D-S-L-E-Y. His repertoire of stories consists of fresh retellings of traditional tales from local legends and earthy folk tales, and magical myths and epic sagas. I've seen him several times and have loved every second. So please, please let us know what you think about the podcast. Leave likes and comments on your podcast provider or email me, Fergus Collins. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. So you've been listening to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast produced by Jack Bateman. Thank you so much for listening and please do tune in to next week's episode. Bye bye for now. <laughs>